Good evening. Please do be seated. It's lovely to see all of you here this evening. We're still in our series, going through the book of Hebrews, and we're almost at the end. We're in a part of Hebrews that starts summing up the whole of the book. I hope you found it an edifying series. I know I found it very edifying, seeing the wonderful work of Christ from so many angles. Um, so we're in Hebrews 12 now, um, and verses 18 through 29. It'd be great if you could open your Bibles again to Hebrews 12. It's on page 1202. Page 1202, Hebrews chapter 12, and we're starting at verse 18. There's an outline in your bulletin, uh, but it's the one that says 6 p.m., not the other one. Shall we start with prayer? The words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it happened like this. One fine, sunny afternoon many years ago, I was out on my bicycle, speeding around the country lanes in the little village where I grew up. Only there was the gateway. Too close, I was too fast, the bike wouldn't turn, the tires ground, the brakes huffed, and then it all crashed, smashed into the gatepost. There was mangled metal, but thankfully not mangled bones. Why am I telling you that? Well, it is an experience that I never forgot. Never again would I get onto my bicycle without remembering what I had seen and heard that day. I would always ride more carefully, especially as I took that last bend to come home. I would slow right down. The experience shaped me. Similar thing happened a few years after that, when England seemed to be doing really well in the World Cup, only to fall at the last minute. Since then, I've known better than to hope that they would ever win such a thing. But it's not just individual experiences that shape us, but also communal, shared experiences. To take another example from my homeland, right up in the north you find Highland Scots. And some of them to this day nurse a great distrust of English people. A distrust that goes back some 300 years to times of terrible bloodshed and suppression. But the people you meet there now, none of them were physically there at that time, but you see somehow this shared experience becomes theirs as it's passed on from generation to generation. And perhaps there are things in your past that have shaped you, or in the past of your community that have made you think and act the way that you do. It was certainly true of God's Old Testament people. In fact, the things that they saw and heard were the things that shaped how they thought about themselves and related to their God. It is no accident that one of the most common ways in which they refer to God is the God who brought us out of the land of Egypt 
out of the house of slavery. They think of God according to their experience. That was a very important experience. But another important one is what happened straight after being taken out of Egypt. You see, God had said to Moses that he would bring the people to worship him at the mountain. And that is what God did. But when they got to that mountain, they saw and heard things that would stay with them forever. Things that would shape them for generations to come. Awesome things. Fearsome things. The mountain smoked like a kiln. Lightning flashed. A trumpet sounded louder and louder. The people shook with fear. Fire and darkness filled the mountain, and God spoke. And the very earth itself shook. God was revealed to them in holiness and power and strength, a holiness so holy that even if a beast touched the mountain, it had to be stoned, and a power so powerful that they had to beg that no further messages be given to them. And this was to become their formative experience of God. In fact, much later, Moses would speak to another generation, a generation who had not yet been born, and tell them that that was their experience. And I quote to you from Deuteronomy 2, he says, Deuteronomy 4, he says to the next generation, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain. The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. That is, although they only saw the mountain through the word, yet it was still their experience to change how they were to live with their God, how they were to worship him with reverence and awe, how they were going to keep his law. But it's not just for them that this is true, is it? It is also true of us, his New Testament people, even today. For we too have just such a formative experience as them. But unlike them, our mountain is not Sinai at all. As our passage says, Hebrews 12 and verse 18, you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be given to them, for they could not endure the word that was spoken. If even a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, it says, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. We have not come there to Mount Sinai. Where have we come? We have come to another mountain, a mountain called here Zion, not physical Mount, Mount Zion, where one of the mounts on which Jerusalem stands, but a heavenly Zion, the figurative term for the dwelling place and city of God himself. Verse 22, but you have come to Zion, mountain and city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. But when did you come? How did you come? You came there kind of like that second generation that Moses spoke to. 
you came to see that mountain through the word. And is that not true? As we have been opening God's word week after week, particularly in Hebrews, have you not been seeing in your mind's eye the wonders of God's salvation, the work of Christ? You have come to that mountain and you have gazed on wonderful, wonderful promises there. By faith, through the word, you have taken your stand at heavenly Zion, and the things you saw and heard there are to change your life forever. But what did we see there? Well, we saw, first of all, our text tells us, the heavenly assembly, innumerable angels in festive assembly, the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. What a comfort that is to think of these. They are, as Hebrews told us, angels, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They are there. But also what godly fear must fill our hearts when we also remember these are the very same hosts of heaven by which God will judge his enemies on earth. They are there. And there too, as Hebrews reminds us, is God himself. He is called two things here. Verse 22, the living God. That is unlike the gods made of idols that do nothing and think nothing. He is the living, powerful God. And again, verse 23, he is called God, the judge of all. We've already heard in Hebrews that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But do you not see that this is the same God in which we have come to hope? The same powerful judge who has purchased our pardon with the blood of his son. The God who calls you still. Draw near through Jesus, through the forgiveness of your sins. He is there. We've pictured him on the mountain. And around him, too, are those that we glimpsed in chapter 11. That great cloud of witnesses, the faithful men and women, those who bear testimony to Christ's faithfulness to them, the spirits of the righteous now made perfect, standing before their God, witnessing to us that one day, if we keep trusting in him, we too will be there. And then, and this is the highlight of this mountain, I think, then there is the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus, about which Hebrews has said so much. Perhaps you remember picturing him as we've gone through Hebrews together. Well, he is there. That greater high priest than any who had ever served before. The one with the greater eternal ministry. The one who has entered once for all into the holy places not made with hands the one who made the perfect sacrifice of himself to bear the sins of many, whoever lives to intercede for you, he is there. And with him too, 
is the sprinkled blood, the blood of that perfect sacrifice of himself, the blood which even right now speaks words of promise, the blood that says forgiveness of sins, the blood that speaks he died for you, the blood that says he settled your debt, he cleansed you from your sins. Far earlier, the blood of righteous Abel had cried out for vengeance against the murderous Cain, but this blood does not speak that word. This blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This blood was willingly poured out to settle the demands of justice. It was poured out so it can cry out before the Father for your forgiveness. A better word than the blood of Abel. And it is there. This is what we have glimpsed through God's word, the mountain on which we, at which we have taken our stand, and that should change us forever. And there are three things the passage says that it should lead us to be doing. First of all, having seen, do you see that this mountain is both more wonderful and greater than the mountain that the Old Testament people saw? So too are the consequences of rejecting it. If those who rebelled on earth at Sinai did not escape, how will we escape if we've rebelled at something so much greater? And Hebrews has told us this a number of times. Chapter 10, uh, sorry, chapter 2, we must pay much greater attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Chapter 10, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who trampled underfoot the Son of God? Our mountain is greater, our promises are more wonderful, and therefore the consequences of falling away are greater. Verse 25, he says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. That's the first thing. Don't reject him. Keep hearing his voice and trusting in him. Second thing that our mountain experience should lead us to do, it should give us a heart full of rejoicing, gratefulness, thankfulness, because what we're given on that mountain is wonderful. What we're given on that mountain through the blood of Christ is the very dwelling place of God. It is a promise of receiving the kingdom that lasts forever, the kingdom which even on the day of judgment will still stand. Haggai spoke of this long before. That was our Old Testament reading promising that there would be this day when once more God would shake heaven and earth. As verse 26 says at the end, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken 
may remain. A day is coming when God will shake down and overthrow all the kingdoms of the earth and bring their glory to himself. A day when only his kingdom will remain. Only the kingdom he gives you through his son. Hear his voice, don't reject him. Be grateful and thankful because the promises are sure and unshakable. And third, worship him. The Old Testament people were taken to the mountain to worship, and in the same way we are called to worship him. Verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? Acceptable worship means worship that God desires and accepts. It would be strange for us to think that we can worship God in a way that he never wanted us to worship him. So what does he desire? What is this acceptable worship? Well, next week you're going to find out. The whole of chapter 13 is filled with examples of acceptable worship of God. But here's a spoiler. It boils down to this. It boils down to the same thing God has said he wants from his people since the very beginning. Acceptable worship that God desires is nothing more complicated than loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. That is the worship that he desires. And we do it with reverence and awe. That doesn't mean feeling awesome. It doesn't mean putting on an awesome show. It means treating God as the awesome God he is, revering him because he is God, and because he is the mighty God, the God who is the same God of Sinai, the consuming fire, it means never being willing to downgrade his word or our obligation to him. It means putting him first because he is first, treating him with reverence and awe. So, dear brothers and sisters, let me urge and encourage you if you have glimpsed that heavenly mountain, then respond as you should. Keep trusting in him. Don't fall away. Rejoice because of the certainty of the promises you have in him. And most of all, keep worshipping him with reverence and awe because he is an awesome God and a consuming fire. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given to us in your word a glimpse of your heavenly mountain, the heavenly Zion, where we see that great assembly, where we see the fullness of your promises, where we see your Son, our Savior, the sprinkled blood, the forgiveness of sins, the sure and certain unshakable kingdom. We thank you that you 
bring all these things before our eyes through your holy word. We pray, Father, that you would help us to keep on seeing them as we open your scripture together. And we pray that you would help us to respond rightly, not ignoring the things we have seen, but hearing your voice. Responding with gratitude, with gratefulness, with thankfulness because of the assurance you give us. Responding by worshipping you as we love you and one another rightly. So we treat you as the holy God that you have shown yourself to be. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.